Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to a special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin, brought to you from capital of Qinghai, Xining. When people think of Qinghai province, what comes to mind first are boundless grassland and the Qinghai Lake, the largest inland salt lake in China. Indeed, the province is famous for its natural beauty and attracts millions of tourists every year from China and indeed from across the world. Qinghai is also the place of origin of three famous rivers, the Yellow River, the Yenzi River and the Lantang River, otherwise known as the Mekong. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called the source of three rivers the source of life. Over the past few decades, China has attached great importance to the protection of this area and established the Sanjiangyuan National Nature Reserve area as early as in the year 2000. Now, the Sanjiangyuan area has become China's first national park. As for now, what has Qinghai done right? What does the experience of Qinghai mean for other parts of the world? I had the opportunity to talk to Lu Lunyan, Chief Representative of the Beijing Representative Office of the World Wide Fund for Nature. Ms. Lu, welcome to The Point. Qinghai province is uh, a very important province in terms of ecology for China. We know here there are the sources of the three biggest rivers here in China, the Yanti, the Yellow and the Lantang River, which become a very important river, the Mekong River, for many Southeast Asian countries. So how do you feel about the importance of this province in terms of its ecological preservation? I think it's, uh, uh, I mean, in terms of the ecological uh, protection, uh, is so important, no need to double mention. WWF has been working here for a long time. We started to protect the Longbao uh, Nature Reserve, and then we started to do the National Park from 2016. Actually, uh, many, uh, several years before uh, the national announcement for the five pilot. It's a hub, it's a vital hub for numerous uh, species of plants and animals. As you mentioned, there's this national park, which is um, Sanjiangyuan, the sources of the three rivers, and the province kicked off a pilot project for this national park as early as in 2016, and your organization had been engaging with the local government, with the national government as well, national authorities, to um, implement this pilot project. What, are, what have been your observations concerning the measures and the innovative solutions that have been put in place? Mm -hmm. China has uh, actually a lot of uh, uh, nature reserves before and at this moment. But why uh, the central government and uh, the provincial government want to set up this kind of national park pilots? Because it can implement or conduct better conservation without the limitation of uh, administration. Um, so it, without uh, provincial or regional administration, but view conservation in a more ecological system way. So that's, I think, the most important uh, achievement, the first achievement for this national park policy and pilot. Mm. We started to work here uh, in 2016, and we uh, uh, 
we spent a lot of work with the community in, in the uh, national park area. We think that uh, Sanjiangyuan and the Qinghai uh, province, um, well, Qinghai province has paid tremendous efforts in the, uh, in the protection. We thought that it delivers what provides with the, the world with a very beautiful case of ecological conservation plus community uh, improvement as well as multiple stakeholder engagement. Would you elaborate a little bit exactly what do you mean by these three elements and uh, how have they been achieved? Yeah, for example, the community, the national park, uh, they invite some of the community members to be the rangers instead of, for example, hunters. So they join the, uh, the team of protection, conservation. Mm. And they also uh, improve their living through this kind of uh, protection. And we also bring in, for example, uh, companies, uh, international NGOs, uh, multiple stakeholders to contribute in the conservation. So that's why I say it, it delivers a beautiful case to the world. Has that not been the case in China, according to your observation, for instance, is that the first national park or first project in China that such an approach can be systematically implemented? Basically, what is the significance of this case for WWF's work here in China? Xinjiangyuan mm -hmm. um, is one of the uh, very first national park pilots in China. Um, and you know that there are uh, minority uh, communities here. So um, I think the work is uh, um, quite complex. And uh, it's also very remote somehow to the uh, eastern developed areas of the country. Mm. So, you know, it's bring, uh, when we bring the uh, uh, companies from the uh, uh, developed areas of, chi uh, of China, the eastern coast, um, to this uh, place and uh, contribute and get to know the community villages here, mm -hmm. I think that the, the meaning is tremendous. What is the experience that you think China can share with other countries, other developing economies or uh, similar cases through the practice of uh, Sanjiangyuan National Park? I think definitely we can share that conservation and community development could go together. That's the experience that we can share with the world. And uh, there are some problems or challenges um, somewhere in the world. So I think that's very important. Protection, conservation, plus community development. The WWF released the report last year on the loss of biodiversity in the world and you sounded quite uh, a big alarm in terms of the numbers. For instance, we were talking about 69% uh, of uh, wildlife population worldwide mm -hmm. is the scale of the drop since the 1970s. So that includes all kinds of animals. Um, how are you seeing the trend here in China? And how much of China's efforts can help contribute to the global efforts to reverse that decline? I think the uh, uh, conservation with the overall uh, uh, protection, natural uh, protection for China in recent years are quite good. But Globally, we're facing the big challenge, as just you mentioned. 
the numbers actually unveiled by our uh, latest living planet report. We publish the report in every two years globally. The problem or the nature loss um, may well come from several reasons, but mainly two reasons. One is the land use change, and the other is climate change. So actually, for example, climate change, every country faces the same challenge. And uh, every degree of warming is expected for more nature and species loss. So um, sometimes we can try our best and do good, do well in our region, in our country border, but sometimes the problem is global and we cannot just deal with it ourselves. Well, as you mentioned, the problem is global and uh, as Chinese development projects go global mm -hmm. via the Belt and Road Initiative, for instance, a lot of talk, a lot of emphasis has been put on how to make sure that at least the footsteps of Chinese investors mm -hmm. or footsteps of Chinese companies are as green as they can be. Mm -hmm. How much are you involved in making sure that that is the case and how has the uh, progress been? We have a project called Greening BRI, and we are also a member of BRIGC. I have to see uh, um, BRI Green Development is a long-term endeavor and also need continuous uh, observation and exploration. So we are still on the way. What we can do, what we, what we can contribute, I think uh, at least from three ways, First is that we can help identify the key ecological areas. We found that BRI runs uh, through many different, for example, uh, protected areas, uh, global 200 ecological areas, key landscapes, and also some kind of like a, a species hotspots. Um, you know, BRI runs from this kind of different uh, areas. Um, so we can help identify. One is that if our infrastructure investment doesn't consider this kind of uh, areas before we start, mm -hmm. it means that the project itself, the uh, infrastructure investment itself may face risks. That's why we can identify the areas and we also develop tools to help the project uh, to assess and uh, disclose their risks. And we also, helps, uh, we also help to increase uh, the renewable investment in BRI countries. How closely are you working with Chinese companies or relevant authorities on these cases so far? Very close. For example, a member of BRIGC and we work closely with MEE and also the uh, companies and the financial institutions who have overseas projects and investments. How much importance do you feel that these companies, the relevant authorities, especially Chinese uh, governments or regulators, how much importance do you think they are attaching to what you can offer when, when they're rolling out a BRI project? Mm -hmm. I think they are aware of the risks and some of the concerns raised by the local community, especially they live around those protected areas. Mm. I think most of them are aware of this now, mm. but 
lack of tools, professional suggestions. Um, so I think it's a good way to work with uh, um, like different NGOs, especially who have teams uh, located there. All right, we have to leave it there. Time is very limited. Thank you very much, uh, Lu Lunyan, Chief Representative of the Beijing Office of the Worldwide Fund for Nature. Thank you. When we come back, a European NGO uses the power of law to bring systemic changes in terms of uh, lawmaking on the environment. How does that work in China? Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. As China takes increasing efforts on environmental protection, laws in this area are evolving as well. Legislation has been improving from seeking greater quantity to seeking higher quality over the past decades. How has the journey been? Where does it lead as the country steps up its efforts to protect the nature? What has been the role of NGOs? I spoke with someone who has been in China for over 20 years and witnessed the progression up close. Here's Dimitri Deboer, the Asia Program Director for Client Earth. Dimitri, welcome to The Point. Um, we talk about environment right now. It's a big topic in China. As we know, um, President Xi Jinping is very keen, very eager to promote the ecological civilization of China. Even when he was serving as a local official in Zhejiang, for instance, in 2005, he came up with the very famous saying that lucid waters and, and lush mountains are invaluable assets. So you have seen over the past 15 years, I, I believe, how environmental awareness and actions have been stepping up. How do you gauge the political will of the Chinese leadership to really make a difference in this field? Mm. Well, I'd say the political will is clearly there and it's very strong too. Um, and I, I think for, for me and I suppose for you also, uh, the biggest change was around maybe 2013, 2014. Uh, I think there was a big uh, awakening in China on environmental issues. Uh, it had a lot to do also with the disclosure of air quality information, which was uh, quite shocking at the time. Uh, so I think that triggered a very strong uh, response among uh, the public, but also the, the government uh, to really want to change that. And uh, I think we're still, you know, uh, since then it's been stepped up so quickly. Uh, you know, a new environmental protection law came into effect very soon afterwards and lots of other laws have been revised and I think when I speak with Chinese people I notice they, they generally care uh, about the environment, often feel some concern, uh, want, want to see uh, the environment being even better. So, so that gives a very strong political mandate uh, and I think the current government is doing what it can. I understand China currently has relevant legislation either nationwide or local-wide um, amounting to over 30 and the kind of uh, environmental standards or ecological standards that's set by either the national or local authorities that's been formulated and revised in the past 10 years has increased also, also tremendously even by three folds. So how do you view this process of legislative work in this regard? So when a new law is being introduced or a new regulation is introduced uh, it, it sometimes takes a bit of time for people to be used to get used to it um, some behaviors need to, 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 to adjust, to be adjusted. Um, and so in that process, I think 
uh, what we're seeing is that in the last 10 years or so, so many uh, new laws and regulations have been introduced uh, that um, you know, many people on the street actually don't know all of those laws and regulations. But uh, a lot of them are quite famous. I think people will know. So for example, uh, the wildlife protection law or the Yangtze River protection law uh, or the um, uh, wetland protection law. So once you place it into these frameworks, it becomes quite obvious. And then you see that each of those laws has made a very big difference. So if we, we take the Yangtze River law, for example, um, it introduced also a ban on fishing uh, in uh, the whole of the uh, Yangtze River. And what we're seeing is that uh, fish are, are very quickly returning. Uh, we even can see dolphins in, in cities like uh, along the, the Yangtze River. Um, so, so it's visible uh, and it, it works. How would you compare the Chinese legal framework for environmental and ecological laws protection versus those of other countries, more developed countries, which have done better in terms of environmental protection? Do you see a difference, different stages of uh, legislation or different approach, different mentalities? Have you ever thought about those? Yeah, sure. So we do a lot of international exchanges um, uh, with the Ministry of uh, Ecology and Environment, uh, but also with the uh, Supreme People's Court and the Supreme People's Procuratorate, so uh, law enforcement uh, and, and the ju judiciary. Um, and what we're seeing is that a lot of things are quite similar. I mean, environmental problems are quite similar across the world, and they're, they're generally uh, a matter where, where people have too much of an impact on the environment, and then you know, very often other people or the environment ends up suffering uh, as a result. So maybe some people make a lot of money, but most people lose. Uh, so that's the, the common feature of uh, a lot of environmental problems. Uh, so that's quite similar. Of course, What's you the know, difference? The, the difference, well, difference? so the, uh, I mean, the, the legal system in every country is different. So when we do these type of exchanges, we usually focus more on um, what type of a problem are we dealing with, uh, what were the main uh, approaches that, that were taken uh, in the law, and then they can be translated to another legal system uh, usually quite well, but uh, even, though, even though the legal system can be very different still. So I'll give you one example. Yes, um, please. In, in China, you have uh, prosecutors. The, the prosecutors in China can bring public interest litigation, so they can litigate for the environment, uh, right? We say uh, the fish can't go to court, no. right? The fish yeah. can't go to court. Sure. Um, so, but the prosecutors in China can go to court uh, on behalf of the fish, mm. uh, and they do that. Uh, and in, uh, in Europe, perhaps an NGO like, like mine, Client Earth, you know, we would pu uh, do public interest litigation in Europe for the environment. So it's somewhat similar. Uh, the systems are different, but there are important organizations and people that can come and litigate for the environment. How do you see the effectiveness of the system so far in terms of uh, the effects that's been achieved, for instance, when the public prosecutor is doing this job, do you, do you see that in, um, the under the Chinese circumstances, this can work well? Absolutely, yeah. It works uh, for the yes, Chinese circumstances. Yes, yes, it's working very well for the Chinese circumstances. Okay. Um, so, you know, in China, perhaps there are not so many environmental NGOs that mm. would be uh, able to bring public interest litigation. So they're allowed to, and that also happens, which is also very effective. Um, but uh, the prosecutors are very strong force and they have a very uh, strong political footing mm. uh, so they can bring cases against local government departments uh, and also against companies uh, when uh, you know environmental laws are being violated or when environmental problems aren't being solved 
uh, and personally I think that's very important, uh, especially in the Chinese context. What is the role of client earth in this process? I mean, your, your job, I understand, is to um, pr provide assistance to lawmaking to bring systemic changes to the environmental protection. In China's case, how exactly have you been working with the Chinese authorities? So that's a good question. Uh, we've done a lot of international exchanges and uh, we try to look at what is perhaps best practice in other countries, what's working well or what isn't working well, uh, and then we'll have workshops or we'll take uh, delegations of, uh, of, of Chinese officials overseas or the other way around. The uh, Ministry of Environment, uh, the minister I should say, um, in 2019 made a, uh, an important decision that uh, the Belt and Road China's overseas investments mm. uh, really ought to be uh, greened. There should be a process by which uh, China's overseas investments have some sort of screening or have some sort of process to make sure that they don't have a very negative impact on the environment. Mm. Um, and so uh, at that moment my organization together with some other uh, international organizations started working with uh, the Ministry of Ecology and Environment to develop such a, a system. Yeah. Um, and then uh, in 2021, 2022, a series of uh, policy documents were right. issued uh, called the uh, Green Development Guidance for Belt and Road Projects and also uh, President Xi announced to the UN that China would no longer build uh, coal fire power plants overseas and also would support other countries uh, in their deployment of renewable energy. Uh, those are all very important decisions and uh, you know, we helped a little bit uh, in that process. However, um, there is a report on China's biodiversity conservation policy and legal system that's been released by the Greenpeace and, and Peking University recently. It says that China's current conservation-related policy and legal system is still weak in its focus on addressing climate change. It says that uh, habitat loss is still receiving relatively little attention in China's current policy documents. What is your assessment? Of, uh, of this opinion and of yeah, the Yeah, that's an situation. interesting assessment. I mean, uh, more can be done uh, and, and that should be clear. So uh, I would say in China the focus started really with pollution control uh, from 2014 onwards, um, biodiversity protection, so habitat protection, uh, ecological protection became uh, a bigger priority I would say around 2018 or so and climate action uh, became really a priority from 2020 onwards. And so China currently needs to deal with all of those issues in parallel, all at the same time. So it's a very big task and it's not easy. So when it comes to uh, perhaps biodiversity protection or habitat loss, um, my assessment is that the, the transition is already very clear. Uh, it's possible that Greenpeace and Peking University were looking at data from you know, 2010 until 2020, and then you would still see a loss. Mm -hmm. But in my assessment, there's so much momentum now in China for biodiversity protection that I would, I would suspect that uh, the loss is already starting to be uh, halted and even reversed. But uh, with climate change, I can see also China making a, a lot of progress. Uh, so there's no climate change legislation currently. Uh, but uh, the Supreme Court has re recently issued a document which gives guidance uh, to judges about climate-related cases. Mm. Uh, it identifies 17 different types of cases where 
that have climate change implications and judges should understand that. Do you think there will be legislation in this regard sometime soon? It's very likely, uh, it's very likely, um, yeah. But legislation takes some time to develop. So the fact that the Supreme Court uh, and now also the Supreme Procuratorate uh, have already gone ahead and, and defined uh, what climate-related cases look like uh, is important. Uh, I suspect that in the next months we will also see uh, the prosecutors bring climate-related uh, public interest litigation. Uh, in fact, they've just issued uh, a few days ago a set of 10 typical climate change-related public interest uh, litigation cases. What kind of uh, contribution do you think China has made to global climate governance? Well, China has uh, recently made a very important contribution to global biodiversity governance in the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. So it's a new agreement, a global agreement by the UN. It's, it's a bit similar to, uh, maybe you're familiar with the Paris Agreement for of climate course. change. Yeah. Uh, so what this is about, it's about biodiversity, it's about nature. Uh, and it recognizes that the loss of, of nature, so we're rapidly losing nature uh, around the world. So since the 1970s or so in the last 50 years, uh, more than half of, of nature has disappeared. And that's very uh, worrying, it's very concerning because we might be undermining the basis for life on Earth. Uh, so that has to be reversed uh, and the UN recognized that. Now China played uh, the role of uh, presidency so it's the, the presiding country in convening all of the parties, all of the countries around the world, mm -hmm. to negotiate a new uh, agreement for nature. And that's exactly what uh, happened in uh, December last year uh, in Montreal. The meeting was supposed to be in Kunming in China, uh, but because of COVID, it was decided to, uh, to have the meeting take place in Montreal. But it was extremely successful. And I can say I was there, uh, and also our organization, Client Earth, supported uh, the EU-China uh, dialogue uh, and negotiations in the years preceding it. So for four years, we supported dialogue uh, between China and Europe, and that, that also made an important contribution. Once China and Europe had a strong alignment on what, the, what the, the, the agreement should look like, it was also quite easy for other countries to buy into that vision. Uh, so it's been, a, it's been a great success and even environmental organizations like mine, usually environmental NGOs will always complain that uh, things are not good enough and a lot more needs to be done. We're also very happy with that agreement. It was really spectacular uh, work uh, by the Chinese presidency. Enough. It's ambitious but also realistic. Yes. What we care about is that you, know, you can have all the ambition in, in the world right. but if it's not actually being achieved you've got nothing, right? It's just targets in the air. So uh, the Kunming Montreal Agreement made a lot of progress in that regard too, committing to more financing towards it, also strengthening the role that each country has to play in terms of reporting on, on their progress, setting better domestic uh, plans, etc. Yeah. So it's a big deal. Thank you very much, Dimitri Deboer, Asia Director of uh, Client Earth, an NGO that uh, wants to use the power of law to bring about systemic change that protects the Earth for and with its inhabitants. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Liu Xin. And with that, we come to the end of this special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing.